Welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, the official podcast of Craft Brewed Music, the home of small batch streaming. Here we explore better music for serious listeners and those who create it. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. It was not an empty statement to say that, uh, you know, talking to Richard Bennett was one of the uh, the highlights of my year. And amidst all of the, uh, you know, the the dread of, you know, working in the hospital with the uh, the virus uh, very present, and uh, my feelings of sadness about what's going on a world away in, in Armenia, where uh, I have friends and did the Peace Corps years ago. And then the, um, you know, the turmoil in this country and the, uh, the seemingly unbridgeable divide between uh, perceptions of the world uh, that, uh, you know, no, no outcome of election is going to solve. Uh, and the, the path to reconciliation is, is just so difficult to fathom. Um, in the midst of all that, uh, having a conversation with uh, a musician whose, whose work is, uh, is so uh, transcendent for me, uh, is, is, the, is the way I want things to sound and the way uh, the way I want to hear music, that uh, it really, it makes it all wash away uh, Absolutely, for, for yeah. a period of time. And and uh, I'm really grateful that we had the opportunity to, to do it. Wanted to hear about, uh, you know, his first experience, literally the first moments that he worked with Mark Knopfler, and also to hear about his evolution uh, from working in the studios, realizing other people's visions to getting back in touch with his own artistic sensibilities and, and self uh was really uh, a rich conversation <laughs> and, and and as he tells it almost kind of reluctantly stumbling into composing an album <laughs> <laughs> right and so to kick it off let's uh let's hear a tune from richard bennett who guitar players rick allen called one sweet swinging soulful cool rocking jazz bow cowboy guitar player this is the proud and the profane from Richard's debut album, Themes from a Rainy Decade. been uh very interested in these these kind of formative transcendent musical experiences where you 
you hear something and you've, you've listened to music on the radio, you've listened to music in other places, but you hear something and suddenly you're like, oh my God, why don't I feel this way all the time mm-hmm. when, I, when, I, when I hear music? Yeah. And one of the things that uh, caught my eye looking through your website and reading the, uh, the notes from Nashville was, uh, I think it was back in March, you were reflecting on all the things you can do with your isolated life. And one of them was kind of rediscovering your LP collection that you'd started from your teenage years. And I'm wondering, <laughs> since this is a show about a listening service, what did you discover in that journey? The thing that's, that always uh, tickles me, I suppose, is every once in a while, you know, you'll think back to a record from your childhood, maybe, that you haven't listened to maybe since you were a child. And you go fish it out and you drop a needle onto it. And the same thing that that sparked you as a child, and I'm talking about a child, not even a teenager, you know, six, five, six, seven years old, the same little moments in the record that buzzed you then still do. Mm-hmm. Now, nearly 70 years old, you know, and you think, wow, man, there was something firing in my brain at that even at that age, you know, and can, uh, can you remember the last one of those that you uh, that you came across? Oh God! Um, well, yes. Um, there was a, uh, a a record called "Endless Sleep" by Jody Reynolds, and it was a very dark record. Uh, the 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 lyric was about a, a suicide. Um, hmm. This guy's girl takes herself off to throw herself in the angry sea, and uh, the actual record itself had this great dark undertow, the sound of it, and that would have been about 1958, and that was Jody Reynolds, and. Uh, I would have been uh, 58. I was, I guess, six, five, seven years old, I guess I was. And it would come on the radio, you know. And I, as, a, as a child, you don't understand the lyrics per se, but the record had such a dark vibe to it. And it scared the hell out of me as a, as a child, you know. And... Uh, but of course, I'd wait by the radio for them to play it over and over, and and that record still does that for me. You still feel the fear? Oh yeah, man! Just the darkness of it, the hmm. darkness of it, and I just love the sound of records. I then nothing sounds like records. It's still the, it's still the best sounding format to me. Yeah, and seventy eights. I got to tell you, you know, people think of seventy eights. These terribly scratchy things and and of course if they've not been taken care of they are but man a clean 78 particularly from about 1948 to when they quit making them in 58 by 1948 uh, the manufacturers had you know eliminated surface noise period and uh because of the velocity of 78 revolutions a minute and the size and the width and depth of the grooves in a 78, man, you can pack so much uh, signal into that. It will tear your head off how good they sound. The fidelity is ridiculous. We clearly need to have a, a listening party at your house once, once that's possible. <laughs> yeah, post-vaccine, come to my house. So yeah. when when you when you complete uh, one of your recordings, do you always get it uh, printed uh, on a on on vinyl so that you can hear it in that format to see if it's realized the way you imagined it? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't. I should, you know, but I I, I don't. Um, yeah, it would be nice to get a lacquer cut and at least listen to it. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I tr- I trust the engineer I use and. I, you know, I trust Myers and the mastering guy. And funnily enough, one of the old albums, um, Code Red Cloud Nine, mm-hmm. is being re-released on vinyl uh, mm-hmm. early next year. 
by a company called Yield Brother uh, Records. How'd that come about? Well, um, the guy who owns the label, who, who is the label, has been a fan for a long time. And, you know, he contacted me two or three years ago with this idea to do it. He wanted to start the label for that record initially. And I kind of held him at arm's length, and I, I just didn't want him to lose any money. I, I thought he'd lose his ass on the thing. And he just kept <laughs> after me and after me, and we became friends, and so we're going to do it. And uh, it's already in manufacture. I've listened to the test pressings, and it sounds fantastic. Really sounds great. That'll be a great addition to the collection. Yeah. And I think there's a market for it too. You know, I, at least a couple times a month, I do like a, a Zoom cocktail hour with some friends from back east, and and most of those guys are are into their vinyl collection, and they they get uh, they get things that are released all the time. That's definitely uh, they are your target audience for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, if anybody's interested in who's listening to this, uh, if you go to the, it's Yield Y I E L D Brother records.com um, and the page is already up and they're taking pre-orders and I think it'll be available in January uh, oh, excellent. well in the works you know. and uh, that's great yeah 180 gram final and all of that And I were uh, when we were talking about uh, about your your solo work, uh, we noticed uh, three uh, dominant trends, and uh, one was this the Western swing and, and jazz. Another was uh, this homage and crystalliz- perfect crystallization of kind of fifties rock progressions, mm-hmm. and then the the third one was songs that evoke the Southwest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and I, I wanted to ask you more specifically about this kind of recurring character in your songs as the, the yeah, Southwest. I know. Well, I was raised in Phoenix, so that pretty much tells the whole, the whole story. Um, I, I, you know, I, and I, one of the albums was called Valley of the Sun, mm-hmm. which was, uh, you know, kind of my tip of the hat of all that music I was growing up with in the early 60s through that decade um, before I, I moved to Hollywood. Uh, and so was that the sound that, that you kind of, uh, you know, came of age with as a player? Sort of, yeah. And and some of it is, is just uh, manifest itself through kind of vague memory of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, rather than anything too specific. Um, but I was, I was talking with, uh, you know, my friend Dwayne Eddy and, and, uh, you know, Dwayne has that thing too. There's a, there's a certain 
desert um, thing that's that's in your playing. It somehow gets in your blood, and it's it's hard to describe what it is. I can't tell you, but Phoenix had a thing, and and I'm sure New Mexico and all of that Southwest down there did. I don't know what it is. It's, I, I should be better prepared for these questions, I suppose. But <laughs> it's just something that gets in you. I, I can't describe it. You know? Was there radio from south of the border that you were exposed to? Not necessarily. Um, uh, but there was all kinds of music going on in town. Um, in fact, the uh, that album that I, I sort of tipped my hat to Phoenix... Um, it's fairly disparate in its scope, I suppose, but that's what Phoenix was. You know, you had young teen bands who were doing their version of, you know, rock and roll of the day and Mersey beat and surf music. And, you know, you had you had jazz flying around. You had pop music flying around. Of course, you had country music. You had Mexican music. You had... Indian music, uh, Native American music. Um, and at that time, in the 60s, there there was still a couple of Polynesian clubs in Phoenix that had live Polynesian reviews. Hawaiian music was still a thing then. And a lot of people were still playing steel guitar, like Hawaiian guitar, not necessarily country or pedal steel, playing Hawaiian guitar. Uh, the guy who taught me how to play guitar was a great Hawaiian guitar player. Um, so that's actually a, a question that I was uh, hoping to to get into, whether that was something that was uh, a later discovery or something that uh, that uh, developed in parallel with your guitar playing. Yeah, it was pretty much in parallel. Um, I, I, I started playing guitar, and then I kind of started dabbling around with steel a couple of years later. Um, but the guy who taught me, Forrest Skaggs, um, was a, a, a fabulous Hawaiian guitar player and, and Western guitar player as well, uh, steel player. Hmm. But he'd come up on the West Coast uh, in the 30s and 40s, and he was he knew guys like Saul Hoopy and Dick McIntyre and uh, so many of the Hawaiians who had become transplanted to the West Coast, to L.A., and uh, so anyway, he was forever playing. You know, I learned how to play rhythm guitar with him playing Hawaiian tunes on steel, and I'd play rhythm guitar to him. That's how I learned my chords. <laughs> I developed a real love for Hawaiian music and, uh, and, and the instrument, steel guitar.
so your diversity as a musician was started early. It did, yeah. Which which then kind of um, became emblematic of your career as well. You've had you know success in in as a player, as a producer, songwriter in the studio, on the road. Was that um, you know? Did you just set out to be a guitar player, or were you kind of um, you know you know nowadays? We, we tell young musicians you need to try to be, you know, you need to diversify and try to do a lot of different things. Was that just brilliant yeah. on your part or was it by uh, <laughs> <No, laughs> chance? I, I just set out to be a guitar player, you know, and uh, got, got very lucky. And because uh, I certainly wasn't very good um, at the start, but I, but I had a lot of uh, desire. And, uh, and I just stayed with that and I had some really very lucky breaks. Um, one in, in that, uh, um, the fellow who taught me, who I mentioned for Skaggs, uh, had a student about 15 years prior named Al Casey and Al Casey had gone on to become one of the wrecking crew guitar player. And, uh, you know, Al became, Al took me under his wing and, uh, he was like my rabbi in to the business. <laughs> um, and, and I learned so much from him and, and of course there are no guarantees, you know, you can't, he couldn't make that happen, but he gave me a place to be, you know, and he, and I met everybody through him. So that was a fabulous bit of luck you know and and then things things began happening after that i just kind of fall uh face first into other things you know i remember having you know i lived in nashville for 20 years from around 2000 to about last year and early in that time Mm -hmm. i remember getting the kim ritchie album kim ritchie's first self-titled album right. that you produced and uh, and just yeah. loving the kind of jangly sound on that in addition of course to her voice and and now going back to that I can hear in parts of that kind of some of your sound as well in the in the uh, you know some of the instrumentation and and vibes and that yeah I can't get rid of it you know that's just me um, <laughs> well, you know something I've, I always loved that album I love Kim and I loved making that record with her um, and I listened to it a couple of years ago. And the only thing I would take back is the goddamn drums are too loud, you know, but, <laughs> but every, all the drums, all the drums were too loud back then. You know? I was going to say, that's probably more a, a major label radio attempt relic. <laughs> Look but at us. We're, we're rock and roll. <laughs> we think we're rock and roll. <laughs> right. It's a great record though. It is. Uh, There's great songs on there, you know? Aaron and I have listened to Mark Knopfler forever as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you've had, as you said, you know, you've been very fortunate to play with, you know, in some of the best settings there are. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a real spoiler, you know, <laughs> the two kind of long-term associations I've had uh, with Neil Diamond and, and Mark Knopfler, man, you know, it's just top drawer all the way. Absolutely. And it seems like, you know, there's clearly you're, you're capable of doing anything you want with the guitar, but it's interesting to hear how you approach these settings. You're not kind of coming in with, with the whole gunslinger guitar thing. You know, we, we were doing an interview, uh, our last episode with Davina Lozier of Davina and the Vagabonds, right. who made her most recent record in Nashville and um, had not planned to use a guitarist, had never used a guitarist, and was hesitant to do so because she said, you know, guitar players just play so many notes, you know, they're, they're always yeah. playing. And so Doug Lancio was, was who she was working with or who the producer wanted to bring in. And, and she ended up being thrilled with the result. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you're, you're a kind of player that, that somebody with that concern would be very pleased with, you know, you're kind of always there to support the song and, and, and play very tastefully. Yeah. Well, you, you're there to, that's it. Exactly. You're there to serve the song. And, and Mark and I, talk about this all the time that's how he feels about himself too Mm -hmm. you know he sees himself as a songwriter first 
and the guitar comes along as part of the package, but it's there to serve the song. And, uh, you know, as far as me, I've never been that facile of a guitar player to where I can spray a million notes around. I just never have been that guy. Hmm. So I, I have to rely on other things to make it happen, you know. And one of them is having a song to play as opposed to having some platform to go blow your brains out on, you know. <laughs> I, I'm not that guy. Uh, I admire people like that, but I, you know, at some point you just have to shake hands with who you are and your strengths and uh, begin begin really taking those seriously and developing that. And it took me a long time to get there. You know, particularly doing the studio thing, you're, the whole um, job requisite with that is to be as many things as you can be Mm-hmm. to as many people as you can be. And uh, so you're, you're constantly chasing, mm-hmm. constantly chasing everything. And that's fine. That's great. You know, it's, it, it makes for some very good versatility. But sometimes you get lost in the, in the chase. Well, it must be hard to develop your own voice. Exactly right. And very often when you come into that, if you're fortunate enough to be able to, to find your way into the studios, you usually come in with a bit of your own voice. And I've seen it happen to a lot of guys that, that they lose track of, of that. I Hmm. certainly did. I certainly did. And, Hmm. you know, it wasn't until I was 50 that I began to finally shake hands with, um, all the things, all the things that I'm not, and, there's, and it's plenty, believe me. Uh, but also the things that I am and really start working on that, you know, and writing tunes to showcase that. inspired that at, at age 50 what you, you had obviously all the career you needed you know what what brought you to that point where you wanted to figure that out and well and go there? Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd always you know write the occasional tune and uh i had a little batch of them around that i started thinking you know i should demo these things and see if i can get some placement action with them. Mm. So that's that's how the first album actually started out. The themes from a rainy decade? Yeah, the rainy decade album. Yeah, that's great. Wonderful album. And uh, so anyway, that's what I did. I set about to demo four or five of them. And everybody was saying, you know, the guys who were playing on it, the engineer, man, this is going to be a great album. And I kept saying, no, it's not an album. I don't (laughs) want to make an album. I never really wanted to make an album. And uh, and then I demoed a few more and, and wrote a few more, and they started going together in a certain way and having a certain sound. And I thought, well, shit, I don't know. You know, maybe I'm making an album. <laughs> it was really, you know, it was the last thing I'd intended to do. And uh, so anyway, by, by about two-thirds of the way through, I thought, okay, I'm making an album. And I wrote the rest. 
And after that, I was completely hooked. And, and I'm addicted to it now, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, you ended up with six and working on a seventh. Yeah, yeah. By my count. And uh, it, it was just the best thing I ever did. Because it, it really, again, the whole process of that focused me up again on who I was and also opened up some other areas that uh, I wanted to pursue. And, and that, I, I think anyway, has developed from that first album. With each album, you know, I feel they keep getting better. Uh, I may be deluding myself, but I, that's, that's what I think. Also, my studio career has, has slowed down as the business has slowed down. And, you know, also it's just the natural arc of that, uh, of that career. So I really have a, a, a purpose for keeping a guitar in my hand. Do you find when you do go back in for, for studio gigs that, you know, in the last 20 years, say, that that process of making your own albums, are you going back into the studio for other people, bringing more of yourself to that? Yes. Yeah. Because I feel less uh, obliged to wear every hat now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm in my late 60s and, you know, fuck it. If you've called me, you're going to get me now. for better or worse um i assume that you want me if you've called me so long-term uh, collaborations that you've been part of, one with Neil Diamond, one with Mark Knopfler, because of that change that took place in you with your own songwriting and your change in attitude, did that change your approach to how you functioned as a, a studio collaborator and as a sideman? Not really. Uh, I kind of had a solid thing pretty early on with Neil and that, you know, I figured out how that worked. And that was definitely me. There was no... Um, but with Mark, the same thing. I mean, it's, we have a way of working together that it's just me, you know, it's me. Um, when I initially got the, uh, the call to, um, to do the first batch of sessions I did with Mark, which would have been in 1994, um, you know, I, I thought, gee, what, you know, what does he want with me? And what the hell am I going to bring to this? And uh, so anyway, we turned up. They booked about three days of sessions. And everybody turned up on the first day. And, you know, every, everybody was a little nervous. It was a big deal to record with Mark. And uh, and he very, you know, he's very sweet. And he put everybody at ease right away. And uh, we got running down the first tune. And uh, the way he runs a tune down is you just take it on acoustic guitar and everybody kind of gather around and listen to the song and he'll run it three, four, five times. And at some point, somebody will, you know, grab a piece of paper and start to write out a chart. And you're just listening, you're learning the tune, you're thinking about what you might play. And I remember sitting right in front of him and I sat there and on purpose because I wanted to watch him while he 
played while he ran the tune down. And what I was doing was watching what and where he on the instrument he was playing, in what register he was playing, and what he was playing. And um, the reason I did that, because it, it, it told me exactly where not to play and where not to be. So that eliminated a big, a big chunk of stuff. So I could then begin thinking around the, around the edges of that to, to contribute something. Hmm. And also, you know, after the course of a couple of rundowns, there was a little line that ran through my head through a couple of the, uh, you know, the intro and the interlude and the outro little, you know, single note line. And, uh, so anyway, eventually we all kind of got on our in our places in the studio and got on our instruments and we did a you know, a run through um on the headphones and I thought, well, here it goes. I'm going to either live or die by this. And I played the little line I had in my head when we, you know, were running down the intro and the tune. And uh at the end of the rundown, you know, Mark said, "Man, what is that? That's great." Do you know what you did? I said, yeah, I know. He said, do that again. And, uh, you know, and, and so that kind of set the mold for how he and I work. And I'm not, I'm not there to get in his spotlight or elbow him out of the way. Uh, I'm there to be creative um, and to add to things. But, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to edge into that spotlight. That's his spotlight, you know. And uh, anyway, as I said earlier, you're there to serve the song anyway, including him. So everybody's on the same page. Well, that's fascinating. And certainly one of the things we were interested in, you know, being being the guitarist in yeah. Mark's band. Yeah, it's a it's a funny it's a funny spot. It's uh, I, I mean, it's one of the most rewarding bands I've ever been in uh, the, the musicianship in that band and the awareness and the listening that goes on between people and the, and the musicianship is just spectacular. And of course, Mark is such a great all around musician, not just a guitar player. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's a huge responsibility. Everybody feels, but there's just that added dollop of, of cream that I happen to be the other guitar player. Right. And, uh, so it's a challenge and it's, it's one I adore, you know, it's so rewarding. through all, all your records and we you know usually we'll narrow down you know the few songs we want to include in the podcast and i yeah. think right now with you our list is is at what like 13 or something right <laughs> it's we have a really hard time deciding <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's so many songs like i made a list this morning and it, it, it's it's obnoxiously long <laughs> just because there's i can't decide <laughs> yeah thanks um yeah you know i like to make music that I, or I hope that I make music, but the way I, I like to receive music these days is I, I just don't like to be beat over the head anymore. I used to love that, you know, uh, but I, I just want music that opens its arms and invites you in to it as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to make some kind of statement or, um, so that's what I try. You know, I, I hope these things do that. I, I think it's very uh, the, the the mission is, uh, is is very effective, and I think uh, as you mentioned, you know, starting with the melody, yeah, as uh, the kind of the first ten percent, and but allowing that to be the the primal element in the tune, yeah, uh, and have everything else serve that, uh, definitely comes through in these songs that they're they're very well constructed to serve that uh, that melodic phrase. <laughs> Thank you. 
think one of the things that uh, that makes your tune so effective is the uh, the, the the tone selections. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guitars are incredibly throaty and thick, and you can play these uh, simple turns of of melody and have a, a little warble of the of the tremolo effect, a uh, little dip of those minor chords with the Bigsby, and like it's just so rich. And it's it's like a human voice. And it sounds uh, very intentional and uh, very powerful. Uh, yeah. Its tones come across. I think there's a lot of that missing in modern guitar music as well. Yeah. Well, thanks. That's that is the point. You know, it's it's hopefully it's like a voice. You try to make it sing and phrase like a like you were singing it. You know. Um, and as far as the tone thing goes, believe me, I've I've had decades of playing distorted guitar and all of that. And, Man, I'm just over it. I, if I don't hear one more distorted guitar, it'll be too soon, you know. <laughs> and, and again, it's it's the road less the road less traveled. So uh, I'm happy to take it, you know. And are 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 you much of of a, of a gear guy, or are you more of a you know guitar chord amp uh, yeah. kind of player? Yeah, that's me. A guitar chord into the amp, stuff a microphone in front of it open up the fader and music comes in, you know? Yeah. Uh, and if there's tremolo on the amp, we'll use that. If there's a plate reverb on the amp, we'll use that. Yeah. I, I tend not to use verb on the amp. I tend to prefer after the fact hmm. um, reverb or, or echo. Uh, if there's if there's tremolo on the amp and I, I need that, I'll use the amp tremolo. If I'm using an amp that doesn't have tremolo, I've, I've just got a couple little... Uh, you know, a stop box, but I, I tend not to use effects. I mm-hmm. tend to, whatever effect is on the guitar is generally done when we mix it after the fact. And I, so I tend to record very uh, dry, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's very simple, really. That's interesting because a lot of guitar players will say, you know, I need to have like the grease on there to like uh, to to play the the line properly. You're you're fine recording dry. I am. I may get a little, you know, I may get a little uh, echo or verb in the phones when we're, you know, when I'm playing. But um, I tend not to lean on effects. And again, it's not that I'm against them. It's just it's the road less traveled. You know, the simplest way is uh, nobody seems to be doing it. Everything is, seems so processed to me. And uh, I don't know. You just get a nice, big, clean signal to hit the mic and, mm-hmm. and get onto tape or to get onto whatever format you're recording. And then you can do whatever you want with it. But I've always found that... Um, when you load a bunch of stuff up, uh, you know, before it hits the amp, and you, you've got all this processed sound coming out of the amp, and then you stuff a mic in front of it, it just sounds small to me. I don't know. Compressed. Compressed and just, you know, about the size of a dime or something. Yeah. To where if you if you do some of your processing... Post, first off, the the studio equipment is so much more high high end. You know, it just sounds more expensive, and <laughs> it is. Um, <laughs> it just sounds better. You know, it's, it's it's a better fidelity to do some of that post or all of it post. Um, but in my case, I'm not looking for a lot of processing anyway. So. Uh, you know, I'm just straight into the amp and uh, and and put a mic in front of it, take it in. Yeah, that uh, that the very first Dire Straits album back in I guess it came out in '77. I, I heard it much later though, after I had been exposed to a lot of you know high gain yeah. uh, rock guitar. Yeah, and uh, it was my my mom brought that album home, and I for some reason that thing I disconnected with it, and it was yeah. that, that clean strat uh sound a little bit of reverb and that's it and yeah. you could hear everything those fingers were doing on that uh, fretboard and that 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 made sense to me yeah it was one of those moments yeah i'm with you i'm with you and again 
you know, if you if you think back to the time to seventy seven, it that was the road less traveled as well, and I think that's part of why. Uh, of course, with the great songs, but um, but I think that's part of why that that band stood out so much. Yeah, you know, particularly for the first album, um, it was so unusual for its time. Yeah, so understated. You still had remnants of of punk around, and you had the new wave thing going on, and it was clearly neither of those things. Did you remember hearing it at the, at the time it came out? I remember it very well. I remember buying that album. I was in England at the time visiting uh, my my in-laws. We were visiting my wife's uh, brother and her and his family. And uh, we were in Manchester and we were at the Arndale Center, the shopping center. And uh, yeah, I remember buying that that album there at the Arndale Center, and then to end up being in that orbit, you know, with right. Mark, yeah, it's just yeah. incredible. That association for me has been I, I, you you learn at every turn, you know, every session you do, even if it's something you don't like, you learn something from it. Every situation I've learned from, but man, I've learned so much uh, through my association with him. Uh, you know, some specific guitar little things, but but a much broader overall um, scope of things, you know. Uh, it's It's just been a great... Yeah. A great association. His um, interest and uh, and use of kind of Celtic themes and, and Scottish music is that something that was that was a new discovery for you, or you were you independently already into that? Um, well, I was you know I was aware of it, of course, but I, I it's it was my first sort of toe into some of these things. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting how people with that uh, Celtic sensibility fall into bluegrass so easily. Don't they? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Right, the whole connection with the Appalachian thing, which which sort of shows up in um, this new record you, you're working on, I guess. You shared a couple of tracks with us, which are more acoustic in oh, nature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's another album that's all over the place. But, you know, over the 20 or so years that I've, I've been writing for, you know, my albums, I guess, um, you know, every once in a while there'd be a little kind of a folky kind of melody turn up. And, uh, you know, I'd go ahead and finish it off, and but they never quite seemed to fit into the other albums. And I ended up with a folder that actually marked folk <laughs> on. And, you know, I'd finish the tune, I'd write them out on manuscript, and, and I'd, I'd throw it in that folder. And as I was finishing up the Ballads and Otherness record, uh, a couple more just sort of delivered themselves onto my doorstep and uh, in, in my mind's doorstep. And uh, fairly quickly, I just I wrote them and I wrote them out, went to the folk folder and threw them in there and I was surprised <laughs> how many uh, tunes had accumulated in there over the 20 years. And I began playing through them and how many of the tunes um, still held water for me as, as compositions. Hmm. And I'd been thinking for a little while, I really would like to do, make some kind of a different album. And I had no idea what that was going to look like. And there it was all sitting right in front of me. Um, it was already written. Um, and then I wrote a couple more tunes in that one. But, but it's not, it's kind of folk, all over the place, um, and and I've treated these things in ways that would be different than what that folk label might conjure mm-hmm. to some people. The reason I call I'm calling them folk is at their root they're very simple folky melodies.
call it a folk album, and I may be the only one who hears it that way, but <laughs> I'm, sticking, I'm sticking to it. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to, to chat with us. It's been really fun and interesting. Oh, man. I'm, I'm flattered and honored to do it, and honestly, I'm really flattered to be you know part of the Craft Brood um, roster. Well, we're thrilled to have you, and it's a good fit. Thanks for listening. For info on the Craft Brood Music streaming service, visit craftbroodmusic.com. Please feel free to rate, review, and share the show. See you next time.